What a leader will do and what a purpose-driven leader will do was, was to help define what is the purpose of what we're doing and communicate that and then create that. So that's the why and the how is how we're going to operate. For us, we have values of collaboration, respect, humility. And so those are the filters that we filter our environment around. And we every fish tank has a filter in the bottom corner. Those are your values. Mm. So I'll come in and I don't change any of the, a, a, a purposeful leader won't come in and change any of the fish. What they do, they come in and change the water. That's what's not being taught at business school. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message comes from Blair Kellison, the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, who emphasizes purpose-driven leaders must change the values of the environment and not the people themselves. On today's episode, Blair reminisces on his unconventional career path, how your values can create more value, and what separates a leader from a CEO. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Blair Kellison. Enjoy. And we will go live in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode <laughs> of the Releaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO of Traditional Medicinals, Mr. Blair Kellison. Blair, thanks for being with us today. Fantastic to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Absolutely. Well, so Blair, first question. I, I got to know, do you surf? Do you surf, Blair? Uh, I don't, but I wish I did. You, you wish you surf. Well, I'll tell you what, Blair. I think I told you I, I got a brother up in Huntington Beach. So, and he's a surf coach, right? So I went up there this weekend try to learn surfing and kind of roll with the big boys they're big in the surfing i mean <laughs> one of his friends rambled off a sentence to me and not one word was in the webster's dictionary i'm telling you <laughs> so i'm up there i'm trying to learn surfing and i come back down to san diego and i'm, I'm out there last night during the sunset and you know, my friend recommended to me, he said, Kevin, you know, maybe you should go back inside you know, closer to the whitewash where, where the small waves are so I went back down there after, you know, wiping on a few times. And, you know, I, I think I really realized, you know, that was probably where I needed to start, where I needed to be. So, Blair, the first question for you on the Realtors podcast is, was there a point in your career when you realized you weren't where you needed to be? Yes, it was probably about a 15-year period. <laughs> so I, I'm a, I, 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 I'm a one of five kids, grew up in the Midwest kind of family, and you're sort of uh, first generation to go off to college. So you went to college to get a job. And uh, so I went and uh, majored in accounting and uh, got a good job in accounting. I went to Ernst & Young in Chicago. And um and I guess what I learned there is uh, I was pretty good at accounting. I passed the CPA exam. I wasn't as good as most people at it, but I was decent at it. But the big lesson I learned there was just because you're good at something doesn't mean you like it. And that was a pretty big lesson, actually. And uh, when, when I left that job, I, I told my dad I was quitting and going to get an MBA and go into marketing. And I said, what do you think, Dad? And he said, uh, you're quitting a better job than your dad ever had. I'm, I can't give you an advice. 
I was like, but I, I don't like it. He's like, but you're good at it. You can make great money doing it. You can have a whole career doing it. I was like, I know, but I'm, I'm 28 and I don't like it. So then you go where? You go get your MBA at Booth. Is that right? Well, it was kind of interesting. You look at that, that Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, when I was a kid, I always wanted to go to Australia. So I was like, I'm going to transfer to the Sydney, Australia office, and then I'm going to love accounting. So I, I, <laughs> I transferred to the Ernst & Young Sydney, Australia office, and I worked there for a year. And you know what? I loved Australia. I hated accounting. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, sure. so that, that was the end of it. So, uh, you know, I, I couldn't even like it in Australia. So let's talk more about this, like success, I guess. What's your definition of success? Did you reach it? And what were you searching for in a job? I, I think success is doing what you want to do, where you want to do it geographically, and with who you want to do it with. For me, that was, I don't know if I had that quite defined at the time, but I knew I was missing those things. And uh, I just want, I tell you, I, I think I just wanted to learn. I wanted to do more things. I did not ever in life set out to be a CEO and, and never, never at any time until I actually was a CEO. And I'll tell you the story about getting my first CEO job later in this interview. But I really just set out to learn. So I went to college to learn. I, I took the CPA exam. I went and got an MBA and I, I, I majored in marketing and finance, ended up getting a marketing job at Nestle and brand management after that. I just was searching and learning. And, and I think that's the biggest thing you can do is just keep learning. And I think I think successful people are continuous learners. So right now you're at Traditional Medicinal. It's an herbal tea company, a wellness tea company. Uh, what's different about that versus, you know, Nestle's Butterfinger bars? Sure. Well, so so I'll just go back a little bit behind that. So I so I, I, I get my MBA and I get I get a brand management job. So I've changed professions. So my you know a lot of people wonder is it worth going back to school to be an to get an MBA? Is it you know does it pay out for all the money you spend? I switched from accounting to marketing. So for me the ROI was pretty high because I, I got into a whole new profession and I I tried to get into marketing when I lived in Chicago. But you're out interviewing at Quaker Oats and 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 you're an accountant and you want to go into marketing. No one's going to give you a job. You know, they're, they're, you got to, so I had to go to school really to change into marketing. And then I'm, so now I'm working at Nestle four or five years and I'm not really loving it. I'm, I'm loving the marketing, but I'm not loving the products. I just didn't have a lot of love for them. And my big, uh, my big life change was when I was in my thirties and I'm living in Santa Monica, California. And I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana. I walked into a natural foods co-op, never been in one ever before, never heard of, didn't even know they existed in Santa Monica, California, and saw all these like healthy, vegetarian, fair trade, organic products uh, that I'd never heard of, and most people never heard of, and I became a vegetarian, and I started embracing this lifestyle, and, and I just fell in love with all those products, and then I went at Nestle, I tried to get Nestle to keep getting into healthier products and taking food dyes out of our products. And, and I really realized that like Nestle is what it is and it wasn't going to change and I wasn't going to change it. And Nestle didn't really need me and they'd be just fine without me. And that these companies at the co-op, they really needed me. So I literally took like eight products from my shelf in, in my little uh, house I lived in in Santa Monica and, and got the addresses on the back of them and wrote to the owners of like seven or eight companies, the natural foods companies, and asked them if I flew to see them, if they would spend 15 minutes with me. And like eight people did it. 
And I went and I, and I and most of them were in Northern California. And I'm still friends with all eight of those people today. All eight people I talked to in 1994, I'm still in touch with. And, 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 uh, and I went and I said, listen, Nestle's really great at sales and marketing and logistics and accounting. And our products are okay. And your products are fantastic. And you kind of need help in sales, marketing, and logistics. And I, I, like, I talked to them all into hiring me. And I said I would do it for free. And so uh, like seven of the eight of them kind of said, yeah, we'll find something for you to do here. And uh, ended up going to work for one of them that was a vegetarian food company in Petaluma, California, which is not too far from where I live today. And um, that really, that just opened a whole new uh, world for me. So it sounds like it it was kind of difficult to sell something that you didn't believe in. You wanted to sell something and work for a company that you didn't believe in. Now, you made another point there, you know, working with Nestle, coming from Booth and you Chicago, you know, another person that studied at Booth and was an economist at Booth was Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman <laughs> wrote the, you know, the social responsibility of business. So I want to you to kind of paint the picture to the audience listening out there. What was it like? What was the reaction you got? from your community, your business uh, colleagues, that you were going to leave your job at Nestle or E&Y and move to an herbal tea company or an organic food company? They, they, well, first of all, when I be, once I started shopping in that store and eating those products, I started calling me the MBA granola head. <laughs> So, so that was the beginning of it. And uh, I swear, my, my boss from Nestle is still my friend today. And I sat in the, I sat in the kitchen at, the, at Nestle and told her I was leaving. And she went, whew, that is great news. <laughs> She's like, you, you are a square peg and this is a round hole and it is not working. She's like, you're a wonderful guy. You're a smart guy. What you want to do and what you want us to do with Nestle is just not lining up with us. And, and so... It ended up being best for everybody. And I have nothing but great things to say about Nestle. And the, the great thing about Nestle and Booth and Ernst and & Young is in 1995, when I, especially in 1995, when I got into the natural products industry and all these kind of funky little companies, well, there weren't Booth MBAs there. and There weren't CPAs and Ernst and & Young people. And so people, it gave me a lot of credibility. People were like, this guy's got a Booth MBA and he's working at this vegetarian food company. When I'm talking to the bank, they're like, maybe we should be thinking about giving this company alone. Maybe there's something here we don't know about. And if you're just a Montessori school teacher, which is the founder was, it's harder to get that credibility. So I, I was bringing not just my passion and personal interest, but I was also bringing a very traditional uh, business background to an industry that had very few people with traditional business backgrounds. So the misconception, and I, and I brought Milton Friedman for a reason. The misconception many people and some maybe even some people listening to this have with an organization like yours is why would you pay extra to build a school in India where your suppliers are? Why would you pay extra to go 100% renewable energy? Why would you pay extra to have organic botanicals and fresh source products that are hard to get? Why would you pay more for that? What would you say to someone who asked that question? So, it first of all, it's an investment. It's not charity. 
So these are investments in the communities that grow our herbs and our herbs are the basis for our formulas and our formulas are the basis for our products and our products are the basis for our company. So it, it really is an investment in our company to have stronger herbal growing communities, to not have pesticides, to have healthy people that are growing these, to have pay fair trade premiums. So schools are being built and water is clean. And what I think it, it does is, and I've had, the, I'm having this conversation on a regular basis with anybody we talk to around investment, like, why are you doing all this? You can, we, we spend about $2 million a year, over about 2% of our top line just in these programs. And they always say, hey, you can make, you can make another two points EBITDA. And my answer is though that enriches our communities, it enriches our, 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 uh, our raw material. It energizes our employees because they feel really good about what they're doing for a living. And it attracts the best talent to come to our company. And not only is it attractive, but that energizes them once they're there. And then it attracts consumers. Our little company has more followers on Facebook than even Patagonia. And it's because people just love our story. They love the way we do business and how we do business. And so it's attracting the best workers. It's attracting the best raw materials. And it's attracting the it's attracting large number of consumers. It's it, if you take that away, we're just another uh, Lipton Bigelow tea company. And I want to stick on this point. I want to read an excerpt from Milton Friedman's The Social Responsibility of Business uh, is, is to increase its profits. So, you know, two, two points more of EBITDA. Um, let's just stick on this topic really quick. So the, the, the phrase here is the businessmen, this is what Milton Friedman is saying, the businessmen uh, believe that they are defending free enterprise when they claim that business is not concerned merely with profit but also promoting desirable social ends, that business has a social conscience uh, and takes its responsibilities from providing employment, eliminating discrimination, avoiding pollution, and whatever else may be the catchwords of the contemporary crop of reformers. In fact, they are or would be if they are uh, or anyone else took them seriously, preaching pure and unadulterated socialism. Businessmen who talk this way are unwitting puppets of the unelect- uh, un- er, sorry, in- intellectual forces that had been undermining the basis of a free society uh, these past decades. So essentially what he's saying there is that he believes if you do the things like you're doing by uh, adding social and environmental value to the value chain, to your suppliers, to your distribution, to your customers, to your employees, that you aren't going to reap more profits and the shareholders uh, will not be able to use that money in the way they, they want to use it. What would your argument against this be? We've had five decades of success refuting that. We've been doing this for five decades. I think we're the future of business. I think that's an old school. If you look at the, the two greatest issues that will be talked about in anyone's lifetime that's alive today is income inequality and climate change. Both problems caused by business and the single greatest solution to both those problems is business. It's our responsibility to be addressing both of those concerns. And I tell you, the thing that's changed a lot is this is what consumers are demanding of the products that they buy. So you can have your Milton Friedman talk all day long, but if people don't want to shop at those companies, then they're going to go out of business. 
because it's what's changed. And this is the, the greatest thing about the millennial generation is they care about the why of the products they buy and where they, they buy what they buy, why you make what you make more than what you make. That's a whole different change from the time Milton Friedman was around. And you look at uh, what, so one of the fundamental laws of corporate uh, corporate law in the United States, which Milton Friedman would adhere to, is a company is in business to uh, to to maximize the benefit of its shareholders. So we're what's called a B corporation, a benefit corporation. So we have a different article of incorporation, and we are incorporated for our stakeholders, which is everyone who's involved in this ecosystem I talked about earlier in our business. And so it, at a regular company, if you if you are not acting in the best interest of a shareholder, a shareholder has the right to sue you. At a B corporation, a shareholder does not have the right to sue you for acting in the best interest of another stakeholder. It's a huge difference. Do you think there's been a failure amongst business schools to teach this principle, to educate uh, our, our top talent and coming out in the workforce like you were back in the day? I, I, I'd say historically, no, because I think it wasn't of enough interest. But I'd say today, yes, because today's companies um, are, are, are just you, you look at purpose is driving business. You know, and, and even a company like Apple versus Samsung, you know, one is just talking about features of oh, the Samsung phone does everything Apple does. But Apple's trying to change the world. They're trying to change the world through media. They have a purpose. And, and that's why they're ultimately always going to be higher valued and more and more valuable than than somebody like a Samsung. So I, I think this idea of purpose and why does your business exist? I, I look at it as like your purpose is why. Why does this business exist? Consumers want to know that. And then how do you exist? How do you treat your employees? How do you treat your supplier? How do you go about existing? And then and then what is it you make? So it's how, I mean, it's why and how, which is your culture, and what is what you make. And historically, everybody's just focused on like, my product does this and my product does that. Everybody can copy all of that. What they can't copy is your purpose and your desire. We are business to connect people to the power of plants to change lives, to change the lives of the people who are communities growing the plants and to change the lives of the people drinking our efficacious teas. That's timeless. That's a powerful statement. That is much different than just a chamomile tea. Now, let's make this transition into purpose-driven leadership then. In that same document by Milton Friedman, he says, you know, a, a business can't have a responsibility because a business is essentially an artificial person. It comes down to the people within that business that make up those decisions and those choices. So for a person at the helm of the company who is making those decisions, um, is there something missing also in, in business schools that they're not teaching? Is it difficult to teach leadership? And how can one go about becoming a better purpose-driven leader? So, uh, y- yes, I think they probably are missing, but I, it, it's values-based leadership. So here's, I'll, I'll give you my philosophy and how, and I, how I, I approach it. So a company is, an, is it like an ecosystem. So our company, imagine traditional medicinals is a fish tank. And all the employees are the fish and the stakeholders are the fish swimming around in the water. And um, and if you're a CEO, so you come into a company and you're the new CEO. OK, so just because you're a CEO does not make you a leader. You, you might be in a leadership position, but that does not make you a leader. You you have the title of CEO. You you have to earn and you have to be a leader. You don't get nobody. Nobody gives you a title. I'm a leader. Those are earned things. And so. 
the, what, what a CEO will typically come in and do, they'll look at the fish tank and they'll pick out all the fish that aren't swimming well and they'll get rid of them. And they'll, and they'll put new fish in there, okay? What a leader will do and what a purpose-driven leader will do was, was to help define what is the purpose of what we're doing and communicate that and then create that. So that's the why and the how is how are we going to operate. For us, we have values of collaboration, respect, humility. And so those are the filters that we filter our environment around. And, and we every fish tank has a filter in the bottom corner. Those are your values. Mm. So I'll come in and I don't change any of the elite, a, a, a purposeful leader won't come in and change any of the fish. What they do, they come in and change the water. That's what's not being taught at business school. So you clean, you then you put pure, clean, oxygenated, value-oriented water in there, and you put a filter in the tank that filters on those values, and then watch those fish swim amazingly. Now, maybe a few then at the end won't swim very well, and you do have to replace them, but that's a totally different philosophy around leadership as a purpose-driven person versus just a CEO coming in, I'm the leader of the company, I'm just gonna make changes and try to increase profit. Now let's talk about the water when you came into traditional medicinals, the Saddlers. Uh, I think you mentioned in your your speech, they're self-proclaimed hippies. You know, they they got into this business for the right reasons. Explain to our audience really how traditional medicinal started in the values of this company when you inherited it. Sure. It's an amazing company. It was started by uh, a woman named Rosemary Gladstone. It started on November 20th, 1974 in Sebastopol, California by Rosemary Gladstar, who was a fourth generation herbalist, and Drake Sadler, who was a community organizer. He worked for the local government organizing events and helping uh, people who were underserved. And they came together to connect people to the power of plants. They wanted to do two things. They wanted to revitalize herbalism in America. They felt like it had really fallen out of favor and was kind of dying. They wanted to really revitalize it. And then they wanted to really um, uh, use that as a business model to improve the lives of the people in the communities that were growing these herbs around the world, which were typically impoverished people. Collectors went out with burlap bags and were out in the world collecting herbs. So that's why they, that's that's how they started the company. So it and it was a bunch of herbalists. It was a bunch of people in Sebastopol that were herbalists. And so for me, the challenge is, and it, we had a good culture and we had good values. For me, what I did is I codified it. So it used to just be like everybody knew all the values. Well, hey, now we got new people and you know we need to kind of we need to indoctrinate them and we need them to really have a good sense of what does it mean to have value? What does it mean to be collaborative? What does it mean to be respectful? What does it mean when you're not respectful? And so we organized those a little bit. But the big thing that we had to do is we went from a 20 gallon tank to a 150 gallon tank. And that was the big change. And we went from having 65 fish to 225 fish. And so scaling, what, what I really had to do was scale that purposeful leadership and scale that culture. And that's really hard. And, and that, that's what we spend most of our, that's our biggest challenge is we double in size every four and a half years. Mm. Now, when you're scaling in a, in a values-driven way and you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to use clean energy, you're trying to get the, the freshest plants, you're trying to uh, provide quality education in India, what supply constraints did you run into as you were growing? 
The, well, the, two things we got to increase our we have to, you know continue to increase our supply. We're very particular about our supply. Organic fair trade takes three years to convert a farm to organic. You have to go through a whole certification process for fair trade. So we're always we had to be keep thinking out and had to keep giving people for we have to literally give forecasts for people to plant things today so that the root some roots take three years to be able to a ginger root or a dandelion root you might want it at two and three years. So you're planting that today to, for your your initial supply three years from now. So there's a whole challenge around that. But the other challenge was around bringing in talent. You're not just adding, you're not just going from 65 to 225 employees. You're adding all kinds of skills that you don't have, trade marketing skills and human resource skills and, and, and analytical skills and Amazon expertise. And, all, and, and so you've got to bring all these people in from the outside and they don't, they don't like, uh, they don't know what it's, People want to work in a purpose-driven environment. They want to work for a socially conscious company. You hear that, and millennials want to do that more than ever. But they don't really know what that means because not many of those companies exist. So we have to kind of help teach them what that means, and they don't all work out. They all might want to be in that kind of environment, but when they see what that really means, you know, if you're not respectful and you're not collaborative, you can't work at our company. And, and I've fired people that that are on the executive leadership team that report directly to me because they're not living our values. And that's really hard to do. But if if I let someone who works for me yell at people and mistreat people and belittle someone in a meeting, then that's a threat to the entire culture of the company. And uh, that's it's pretty challenging because people are like, hey, listen, I'm doing a great job. I'm doing all the things you asked me to do. I'm like, I know, but you're not being respectful. You you made somebody at work cry. If you make somebody at work cry, you can't work here. I don't care if you're the head of all marketing or you're the head of all operations. You have to leave. And, and it's, uh, it's it's shocking for people. The people. Some of the people have like, oh, it's been shocking for them because – According to what they view as the standards, they were very successful. Respectfulness, collaboration. What to you makes up a good qualities of a leader and what are you looking for in hiring employees? If, if I could find a, a test to, to, to determine humility, I would be able to, you need, we need a Myers-Briggs for humility. Humility is the number one thing I'm looking for. You think about a person who's humble, a person who's humble, it, it listens, a person who's humble doesn't think they have it all figured out. A person who's humble understands a good sense of what they don't know just as much as what they do know. A, a person who's humble is empathetic with people. Um, they have high levels of emotional intelligence. For me, the number one thing I'm looking for is humility. Is this person think they have it all figured out or do you think they, they don't? And this is where me, Blair, coming from the middle of the pack at Ernst & Young, in the middle of the pack at Nestle, and I was a B student. I was in the middle of the pack academically when I was in, in school. There was always a whole level of people that were smarter than me. I was always asking for help. I was I never thought I had it all figured out. I was always listening. And those skills turned out to be little did I know all of that, all of that middle of the pack experience was making me a pretty good leader. I had no idea at the time. Did you ever reach a point in your career where you hit rock bottom? And when was that if there was one? I I I I Yes, I still have splinters in my butt, as they say, at the, at the bottom of the barrel. So I'll tell the story pretty quickly. But I go to I go to I leave Nestle. I go to work at this vegetarian food company. I worked there for two years. 
Uh, I figured out that I actually knew a lot more than I realized, and I could even maybe even run a company because uh, I just had never been in an environment that small. So I left and started my own food company. I started a vegetarian food company. I made vegetarian soup under a company called, it was a company called Vegetarian Cafe. Took all my money from all my IRAs, from all my businesses. I'd worked, you know, from the Nestle and Ernst & Young, spent all the money, raised a little bit of money from family and friends. And it was, it was, a, and I got it into about 3,000 stores. And, but it, at the end, it was an epic failure. And the very lowest point of, of that whole experience was, was living in a, crap ass little apartment in Oakland. I was the only employee in my company doing everything, doing production, doing sales. And I went over to the Safeway. And uh, before I went into the Safeway, there was a Bank of America ATM. And I went in and I went there to get $20. And it wouldn't let me have $20. It wouldn't let me my money out of my IRA. I mean, sorry, out of my checking account. And I called the bank and I was like, hey, listen, your ATM is not working. And they said, sir, your balance is $18.97 and the minimum withdrawal from an ATM is 20 bucks. I was 36 years old with an MBA, a CPA, fantastic jobs. I'd sold every stock I owned. I had a crap ass Subaru and a crap ass apartment and $18.97 to my name literally to my name, went back to my apartment, sat in my crap ass little chair in that apartment and I cried for about an hour. Called my parents, they, they sent me $1,000 to pay my rent. I, the next morning, I put a suit on, went to downtown San Francisco, had to take an accounting test at a company called Account Temps and went out and got a temporary accounting job at 36 years old so I could have enough money to eat. That was my low point. The old dream is the journey, right? Incredible, absolutely incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. Now, where are you right now in your career? I mean, you, you've been mentioning that you wanted to work for a company that you believed in, that you bought into. Um, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning, you go to work? Uh, describe to our people uh, your satisfaction with where you are right now. I, I love what I'm doing. I love the people I get to work with. Um, I love what our company's doing. I got to spring in my step every day when I get up and come to work. And, and uh, I'm excited about it. Every day is different. Being CEO, every day is different. But even during this COVID times, I'm, I'm, I'm working at the manufacturing facility because the office is closed. And I'm just enjoying the hell out of being around the factory workers and, and being around the line people. Yesterday, I bought 65 pizzas and I brought them in myself into the cafeteria. And like there was a mechanic in there and there was an operator and there was a janitorial person. There were like 20 people in there. There's like, I, I, I love that I'm the CEO of the company and I went and picked up 65 pizzas and brought everybody lunch and delivered it myself. Like, I just love that part of it. I love the strategy. I love my, I have an amazing executive team that works for me that we all work together and, and, and we're really, we're growing and we're trying to meet the needs of the company as, as we're growing. Um, so it's very intellectually interesting. Um, we have a thousand kids that will go to school today in India at five primary schools that we own and operate. We built the buildings, we pay for the teachers, we give them a hot meal, we give the kids a uniform, we give them a bicycle to ride to school. Um, that's what's going on from our business. And, and uh, we are buying herbs now from uh, about 280 farms in um, 
We're buying 110 different herbs from 280 different farms on 42 country, from 42 countries on six continents. And that stuff's on the water all the time, moving around. And people all around the world, you can go to remote corners of China, and people love traditional medicinals because we're paying a premium for their herbs. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an honor to have my job, literally an honor to get up every day and have my job. Do you drink tea in the morning, Blair? I drink tea all the time. I drink tea mainly at night. It's it's okay if you work here to drink coffee in the morning. <laughs> so I would I drink most of my herbal tea in the evening. Now, what about competitors? I mean, that's I feel like you're working in kind of a niche sector, like wellness tea. Has anyone tried to copy you? And and do you think they can ever get to the the level that you are currently at? Sure. So when I came here about twelve years ago, there were basically three kinds of tea in the United States. There was uh, black tea. There was green tea and there was herbal tea and herbal tea was mainly chamomile and peppermint tea. And then traditional medicinals had a little like 1% share. There was 1% of the tea category that was kind of, well, it's it's not just herbal tea. It's actually good for you. It, it, it can cure. It can help you sleep or if you're constipated and that that one that was 1% of the market. And now today, that's about that piece of the market is about 22%. And it's second only to black tea, and it's almost rivaling black tea. So what we did done over the last 12 years is we've created this category of wellness tea that's now uh, over 20% of the consumption of tea in the United States is specific wellness tea. And now every single person in the, and we're the fourth largest bag tea company in the United States. I mean, I would have never thought we could be that big. We're the number one selling tea on Amazon. We're the number two selling tea at Target. We're the number one selling tea in 10,000 health and natural food stores, including um Whole Foods and and Sprouts and and places like that. And now every tea company in America has copied all our products. They've tried to copy everything we're doing. But the way we do it with our uh, with our uh, Pharmacopeia, which is a medicinal quality of herb, and our organic and our fair trade, and the way we educate consumers, we have two million. We have more people that follow us on social media than the top ten tea companies combined. Because they love our story. They love the way we do business and why we do business and how we do business. And they love meet the herbalist and they're learning about plants and it, 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 it's an adjunct to their gardens. And they just really are engaged with our brand. It, it's wonderful to see. And, and before we go any further, I just want to let our audience know we've still got a, a, a lot of you hanging on here. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you all want to ask questions, just make sure you add a question mark and I'm going to see it. We've got a few coming in already. Uh, we're going to ask these at the end of the show, so just keep asking those questions and we'll get to it. But Blair, you know, what comes to my mind is the only time I've been able to travel abroad and experience the world was last summer. And about a year ago today, I went to uh, the country of Bali, um, and I wish I would have learned surfing before I went there, but um, uh, now we know. And I, I stayed in the family of about 30, like a homestay it was. Okay. And I, this guy was rated like number one food place in Bali, and it was just a family like eatery. And I, I kept asking him, said, Gatoot, you know, how, how is your food so good? He said, well, you know, there's no stress here, Kevin. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> he, said, he said, well, if there's stress, then the stress from the person goes into the cooking, and it goes into the animals, and then the, the animals go into the, the people that eat it, and then the people that eat it go back to cooking, and you can't have stress in your products. So when we think about impact of, of medicinal tea, of wellness tea, how are you measuring this impact, if you are, 
And what do you think the ultimate imp- impact of, uh, of healthier human beings will, will be in this planet? That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that we are offering people, we're like a, a non-medicine medicine. If you're, if you're constipated and you go to the doctor and you get a laxative prescribed you, um, or you drink an herbal tea, one, one is so empowering and so natural and the other is so pharmaceutical and contrived. And so I think that what we're doing is we're enabling people to help themselves. So we we're really what we're providing with our teas is self-care. So instead of taking an Ambien uh, drug, you can take an herb. And now our herbalists would tell you that our herbs are just as much medicine as any of the pharmaceutical drugs. And there's a large portion of pharmaceutical drugs that are based on plants anyway. But people love to take natural products and to to discover them themselves and learn about them themselves and take care of themselves. And that's the empowering piece that comes with it that's really magical about our products. So... Now going forward, Blair, where do you see yourself in a few years? Uh, do you ever want to quit this job? Do you believe in the golden age of ret- retirement? Like, what are your thoughts? On <laughs> I'm not leaving until they drag me out for one thing. So I, I, this is what my literally, um, and, and I mean this with all sincerity, um, my entire life personally and professionally prepared me to be the CEO of this company. So I'm not sure how good of a CEO I am, but I'm better at being the CEO of this company than anything I've ever done in my life. And and that fulfillment in itself is something I would never give up. I would never trade that or risk that for anything. Um, we have big plans for the company. We're really just getting started. We feel like we're, we're just doing more and more things all the time. We, we've historically made herbal tea and now we're going to make other herbal products. And so we're going to expand more into a botanical wellness company than just a tea company. Um, I see myself being on the board of this company when I'm 80 years old, if I have anything else. And what I'm really liking to do now is do things like this. I really uh, appreciate this opportunity to speak to your audience today. I feel like I have a good story to tell about being yourself. Like I always tell people like, don't be, don't listen to this and be inspired to be like me. Listen to me today and be inspired to be like you. Because that's what it's all about is everybody reaching their own full potential. And I've gone there and back and I've been able to reach my own full potential. And so I really want more and more opportunities to talk to other people and to help other people along the same journey. For me, my joy in life is, is trying to bring other people along on the same journey I've been on. I don't need any more money or fame or any of that. I just want to bring people along to experience the happiness that I've experienced by lining up their personal life with their passions, their kind of their head and their heart and really becoming their full self in, the, in their career and in their personal life. And so that, that's really what I want to do. And then I do a lot of career advice. So anybody who's listened to this podcast is welcome to contact me on LinkedIn. I literally talk to two or three, maybe two to five people a week and I do it on my commute to and from work. I'll talk to anyone from a 20-year-old to a 50-year-old. I'll talk to a friend, somebody last night who's 58 years old for 45 minutes who's making a career change. Um, it, that, it's just my passion is helping people connect themselves with their with their passions and align that with their career. And I, I got all the time in the world to do that. And that's what I want to do. I want to be the CEO of this company. And then in any, any time I have, just give back and help others come along and, and try to have the same happiness I've had. So advice then let's let's expand on that a little bit more blair 
when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do, did you do a lot of soul searching or was it when you visited that market and you found out, you know, I really like uh, organic, fresh source produce and this is the moment when I realized that I needed to go pursue something like this. Yeah, for, for me, it was it was um, it was a combination of, of for me, it was a combination of finding that, like you said, and then I, I wasn't doing well in Nestle. You talk to anybody who works there. I, I was OK. You got to be decent to get a job there. But I wasn't a star performer. I, I didn't have a big career ahead of me there. And so I was kind of failing at my career in a way. And I was like, I got to figure this out. What, what is it that I'm good at? And so what I'm, what my advice I give to people is you got to get to know yourself and then get to know what you like. I, I did do some things when I was younger. I, I moved to Australia all by myself. Hey, you really get to know yourself when you move to another country all by yourself. I took some trips by myself. I traveled around Europe by myself once. Um, I, I advise people to get out of their comfort zone, get into some places that, that they're uncomfortable, be, do some things by yourself, interact with other people that you normally wouldn't interact with and get to know who you are, get to know what's in your head and get to know what's in your heart and then make the connection with your career. So, if, you know, I talked to somebody the other day that, that, um, that their, their love in life is, is cooking. And, and they should be in the food business and they should be in the food service business and they should be out. They're doing sales of some technology product. They should be out selling products to chefs and restaurants. And like, oh, I never thought about that. But it's like that. It's, it's trying to figure out who you are, what you like, what gets you excited, what gets you up in the morning. And then if it's sports, then go to work for a sports company or go, you know, just just it's not that complicated. Blair, you've been answering a lot of people's questions in, in your spare time. Uh, I'm going to ask you to answer a few more really quick coming from our guests. Uh, first one comes from Doreen um, and the other one comes from Noah. And they're kind of similar. Doreen asks, is, is Blair and traditional medicinals experiencing any supply chain issues with this pandemic? And Noah asks, how has the company had to adapt with the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. So, so we, we're, we're deemed an essential business. So we've been an operational ever, ever since, you know, we, we've been operational ever since. And then if anything, our sales are even up because we make wellness teas, in particular immunity teas. So um, we, we've, we've had to really uh, step up that. So our whole focus of the company has been around manufacturing. We're bring, like the, the lunches I brought and we're, we're doing exchanges and we're, we're trying to do things for the employees here every day. We've done all kinds of safety issues and taking temperatures and gloves and masks and, and um, so we're, we're number one priority is safety. Second priority is keep production going. And and then uh, on the supply chain, we've been in touch with all our supply chains. We're offering to purchase vehicles. Some people can't go on the bus anymore to get to the growing region. So we're maybe trying to supplement with a couple of cars. We've been talking to everybody about little things we can do. Our supply chain issues are getting people out in the field so they can plant and getting people out in the field so they can harvest. And so we're in touch with those communities and, and trying to do what we can on that end. And so to date, we haven't had supply chain issues and um, we're, we're keeping things running. And, and um, so far it's gone pretty well, but it, it, it's been, a, it, it, our employees are scared. You know, they, they're, they're scared to come to work. And at the very beginning, they didn't know why they had to come to work because they were the only ones working because every, all their friends were not deemed essential businesses. So, um, and I've been here every day. So uh, I come to the plant every single day. I told the plant manager the other day, like, 
Russ, love you. Love working with you. Uh, you will never see me this much ever again, no matter how long either of us work at this company, because I'm here every day. But I'm having a lot of fun being here every day with, with, the, with the group of people. I, I can literally take my chair and wheel it into the, CEO, to the plant manager's office. You know, he might not like that, but I think it's great. So I've really, uh, really enjoyed my relationship, building the relationships with the people in the plant that I used to see once a week that now I see every day. And to stay on this topic of COVID, uh, if you've watched any cable television lately, uh, you'll see commercials that say, we, we're trying to help you get back to normal. Uh, and some people, Blair, made the argument that we, we don't want to get back to normal. We want to reshift and rethink capitalism uh, in a way that's going to sustain our planet, sustain our people, and sustain our profits. What are you envisioning for a better world through business? Sure. So a couple of things I'll start out by saying, listen, in, in, in a world with maybe very little facts these days, two things I think are factual is in every dangerous situation, there is there is danger and chaos and there's opportunity in every dangerous situation. There's opportunity. So you have to see the opportunity. And the second thing is Darwin was right. It's not the strongest or the fastest and the tallest that survive. It's the ones that can adapt. And so I, 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 we're looking at COVID in three phases. One is the phase we're in right now, which is starting to end, which is kind of locked down. The second is all the way till January of 2022, which is all the time before there's a widely distributed virus. And then there's the after 2022 time, which will be kind of the new norm, the new permanent normal. We believe that this, a couple of things, this, this, non-vaccine area, which is going to be about 18 months before a vaccine is widely distributed, is going to be such a long period of time that there will be permanent changes in consumer behavior around shopping and permanent changes around offices and working. And so we believe that people are going to work more from home both in the short term and in the long term. So we're trying to embrace it. So we're looking at, we have employee meetings now, you know, once every couple of weeks on, on Zoom and we're, we're doing everything electronically. We're presenting to retailers. So here, here, the, the, there's opportunities everywhere in all of this. The people are starting going to work from home more and they're going to be with their families more. They're going to be commuting less. They're going to be less stressed. The office is going to become a place where you go and you have collaboration and you have meetings and your individual work time at your desk is going to probably start to be done at home, at least a lot more. Uh, our sales team is going to travel a lot less. So I, I, it's very common for me to fly all the way to Minneapolis and spend 30 minutes on a target meeting. I'm going to do that on Zoom now. We can have an herbalist on every one of our sales calls. We can have the CEO on every one of our sales calls because it's just popping up on a computer. Um, our sales team probably spends 30% of their time traveling, renting cars, staying in hotels, going to restaurants. Uh, they can have all that time back in their life and they can have much more meaningful dialogue and uh, with, their, with their buyers. So I, I actually think and, and again, we're very fortunate. Uh, the, the, obviously, we, I haven't experienced any death in my family. Uh, there's people dying. It's, it, there's a tragedy here, and I don't want to diminish any of that at all. But I think going forward, it's an opportunity for business to have a much smaller carbon footprint and to, uh, to be able to have employees have more time to themselves and have less stress. And I think COVID is going to be a very good thing for the environment and for work over the long term. 
well said and well put. And I want to just expand on that as well. We had Mr. Paul Stamets on the show. He's a mycologist and he wanted to challenge Darwin's theory. And it's very similar to what you were saying. And I think you'll like this one is it's not the individual that adapts. It's the community that adapts together that survives. Uh, so with this stakeholder capitalism approach, uh, with the values-based leadership that you said was started to improve lives, uh, improve ecosystems, uh, to you, Blair Kellison, what is your definition of a real leader? Okay, so I put a little thought into that because I knew you were going to ask me that question. So the number one thing is you can't be a real leader unless you're really yourself. So my number one career advice to people is you got to get into a company where you can be yourself. I am the exact same person at traditional medicinals as I am at my dinner table with my wife and daughters. So that's step one. If you have to act different or put on a persona, you're never going to be a real leader. So you, you've got to be yourself. So, um, and, and a real leader leads from their heart and their mind. And um, l- listen, you have to be, a, there's as many different leadership styles as there are people. You have to be a leader from yourself. There's 300,000 books on Amazon about leadership. Save yourself the trouble of reading all of them and just really get to know yourself and who you are and lead with who you are and you'll be the best at that and as i said earlier don't be inspired to be like me be inspired to be like you becoming a leader is really analogous to becoming yourself it's that simple and it's that hard so um if you can if you if you can uh, connect your heart and your head you're going to really get there. And uh, and how do you know if you're getting there? And how do you know if you're a real leader? It's measured by your level of humility and vulnerability. Contrary to everything you've heard in your entire life, vulnerability, accepting and being humble, in particular vulnerability, is a leader's single greatest strength. To say, I don't know the answer, what do you think? Or I don't have this figured out, or God, I'm scared too. That is what connects you with people. That makes you a real person that they can really connect with and trust. And if that's the kind of real, if you can have that vulnerability, you will get people to connect with you. And if people connect with you and they know you care about them and you have empathy for them, they will do anything for you. And that's what I think a real leader does. Blair, beautifully put. And uh, if you're trying to be humble, uh, please come down to San Diego. We got a few ways uh, waiting here for you. Probably the most humbling. <laughs> so, Blair, I just want to appreciate your time coming on the Real Ears podcast. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. With 40 people on the show. Just want uh, uh, if I could chat you right now, if it would let me do that. I just want to say thank you all. I appreciate all your support. You can find more episodes like this on our YouTube channel, at Real Leaders Magazine, as well as on our Apple Podcast channel. It's just the Real Leaders Podcast. This one will be up in two weeks on audio, two weeks on video. Uh, for Blair Kellison, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, know thyself, and always, folks, <laughs> keep it real. Thank you so, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on, Blair.